like he said, we are in 1 John. If y'all want to go ahead and open up there, 1 John chapter 2. And um, so, William, you're, you're brown belt now? Yes. How long have you been doing this? Uh, a year now. A year. All right. So what if uh, William today sparred William a year ago? Who would win? You're not sure? Well, you're defeating the point of my illustration. William, William new and improved William would win, right? All right, Taylor, the trig stuff. You better at trig today than you were two months ago? But could you go back to what you had two months ago? That's a good point. It keeps getting harder, so maybe it doesn't feel better. But in reality, if you were to go back and do this stuff from chapter one, it would seem ultra simple, right? Yeah, because you've been learning and growing, you know? Uh, same thing like Kate, the swimming thing. What if you, Kate, today raced Kate from two years ago in swimming? Would, you, would Kate today win? Yes? Why? But why is it like 20 seconds faster? You've been training. You've been working, right? It's how God made us. God made us to learn and grow and develop in so many different ways, physically, mentally. Also, though, spiritually. Spiritually, just like you get better and you grow when it comes to taekwondo, when it comes to trigonometry, like when it comes to swimming, anything that God's given us to do we grow, we develop, we get better, we get stronger, and it's the exact same thing in our spiritual life. In our spiritual life, when we're in Christ, the expectation is ongoing spiritual growth. You shouldn't be at the same level of spiritual maturity now, or in, let's say, three years from now, than you are now. God grows us, but the reality is that in the church, we are all at different levels, right? Some of us have known Christ many years. Some of us came to know Christ at a very early age. Some of us may have come to know Christ last month. We're all at different levels of spiritual maturity, and that's going to be true in any church and in any group of Christians. And John knows that. John knows that the churches he's writing to are going to be composed of people who are at all different levels of spiritual maturity. And he addresses that in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Who remembers the theme of 1 John? Anybody? Anybody got the theme of 1 John? I know somebody knows it. Somebody's got to test of eternal life. Exactly. John's writing so that we can know as followers of Christ that we have eternal life. And there's a lot that comes with that assurance and that knowledge. Obviously, the assurance of eternal life is a big part of it, but it also impacts our day-to-day lives. Our, Our assurance of Eternity with Christ in heaven changes how we live now. It changes our day-to-day life. And being in possession of eternal life, it impacts how you think. We talked about that when we looked at Romans 12, right? We talk about it all the time. The way you think is going to be changed because of your walk with Jesus Christ. The things that you love, and we saw this last time we were in 1 John, and we're going to see it again today. The things that you love and don't love 
are also going to be shaped by who you are in Jesus Christ. Your heart is going to be changed by who you are in Jesus Christ. And what, so your thoughts, your passions, your heart, when those things get changed, what does that do to the external way you live in your day-to-day actions? Does it change you there? What did Jesus say about how our internal heart affects our actions? What did Jesus say about that? Yeah. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is going on inside of you impacts what you say and everything you do on the outside as well. And so John addresses this repeatedly in this letter. And while, going back to what I started with, while eternal life affects all of us, and it affects us all in the same ways. The, the fruits of the Spirit are the same for everybody. They, the, the growth rate, the areas in which we grow, the areas in which we uh, struggle are going to be different from person to person. And so again, John recognizes that in the churches he's writing to and in any church, you are going to have people at different levels of spiritual growth different levels of maturity. Um, So last time we were together, he talked about just the passions of our love for one another would be impacted by our eternal life in Christ. Uh, He told us last time that your love for other Christians is a hallmark of your faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're going to love the church of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're going to love other believers. If you don't, that's a sign very well that you may not be in Christ. And so one of our changed passions that he addresses is our our love for one another. But another one he's going to address this morning, really two parts. First, he's going to talk about our different levels of spiritual maturity in verses 12 to 14. And then in verses 15 to 17, he's going to talk about how our love for the things of this world or what we should not love in this world is also changed through Jesus Christ. So in the midst of the, the first section we're going to look at, verses 12 to 14, is just simply diverse spiritual maturity. Part one, diverse spiritual maturity. It's, it's this section that he really drops in to the middle of talking about our changed passions in Christ. Before it, he talks about our changed love for one another. And after it, he talks about our changed attitudes towards this world. Um, and it's interesting. So some translations will have the, like I think I can see it here in Ian's Bible from here. So the Bible shows you where it's kind of poetic, lyrical kind of content and that it changes the font structure. Some of them do. Mine actually doesn't. But I think very much you'll see when he talks about our different levels of spiritual maturity, he does it in kind of a lyrical, poetical way. Um, So first we'll talk about our spiritual maturity. And then part two, we'll talk about do not love the world. But the theme for this is that the believer in Christ will have a growing passion for God and his eternal kingdom and a decreasing passion for the temporal things of this world. 
The believer in Christ will have a growing passion for God and his eternal kingdom and a decreasing passion for the temporal things of this world. But again, we're all at different stages in this growth, in this growing spiritual maturity. And that's the first thing he talks about. Verses 12 to 14, diverse spiritual maturity. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, the first thing I want you to know is this is not a reference to the age of the people he's writing to. This is about their different levels of spiritual maturity. And it's the different levels of spiritual maturity that we all go through as members of the body of Christ. And there's three different groups he addresses. He addresses those who are babies in Christ, those who have just come to know him. He addresses those who you maybe would call youth in Christ. They're definitely beyond the baby stage, but they're not as mature as those that he addresses as fathers, those who are grown in their maturity. And so there's three different groups he addresses. And in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. One of the things I try to avoid and not talk about often are the original languages because our English translations are very good. And usually there's not a whole lot of reason to get into the original language um, in, in these passages, but here's one where I'd say there's definitely an exception. Here's one where the language that John is using in the original Greek really does matter because in verse 12, he addresses children, right? And then look at verse 13. Who does he address at the very end of verse 13? Because you know the Father. Who, who does he address there? Children, again, right? So it's the same English word in verse 12, and it's the same English word in verse 13, but in Greek, he actually uses two different words. Two totally different words in verses 12 and 13. And so in verse 13, he's going to be talking to those who are babies in Christ, those who are, are newly born in Christ. It's the word, and I'm not good at saying them, but padea. The word padea is the word he uses there. In verse 12, he uses the word technon, which is a totally different word. And essentially what it means there is you are an offspring, you are a child of somebody regardless of your age. Now, is every human being the child of somebody? Regardless of age, right? They are the child of somebody regardless of age, and that's actually the word that he uses in verse 12, which we translate 
children there. So in verse 12, it's kind of a blanket statement. Now he's addressing three groups, the spiritually young, the youth, and the spiritually mature. He's addressing three groups in verses 12 to 15, but are 14, but he starts in verse 12 with just this umbrella statement. I am writing to you, um, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. So that would be a statement because of the word he uses there for everybody who is a child of God in Jesus Christ. If your sins are forgiven you, then you are a child of God at all levels of maturity. Just like once you're born as a baby, you are the child of your parents forever, no matter your age. You're still their child, right? And, And so if you are forgiven, then you are a child of God. It is that simple. If your sins are not forgiven, then you are not a child of God. And We've talked about it. We talk about it every week just about because it's the most important aspect of what we talk about in here. It's the gospel. The gospel is where you become a technon, a child of God, what he uses in verse 12 here. Because it's through the gospel that we come to a place of recognizing our sinfulness And then we recognize the holiness of God and that from the very beginning, you go to Genesis, you go to Leviticus, you go to the earliest parts of the Bible, God calls his children, those who would belong to him, to be holy, to be perfect. As soon as he calls out Israel from Egypt, Leviticus 19.2, he says, I'm calling you out of Egypt and you be holy like I'm holy. And holy means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is moral perfection, a complete absence of sin. Is that requirement of holiness a problem for us? Yeah, it's a big problem. Why is it a big problem? Because I don't think I have a holy hour in my life. Like, forget a holy life. I don't think I have an hour goes by where I don't fall into some level of sin, even if it's just a little bit. And all it takes is a little bit to not meet the standard of what is required to be a child of God. And the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, causes us to recognize that. But with that recognition, the Holy Spirit also brings an understanding of the solution. That God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty for our sins. Not only to pay the penalty for our sins, but to also live out the perfectly holy, righteous life that he requires. So that if we believe in him, we don't perish. We have eternal life because he pays the penalty for our sins, and through faith, that perfectly righteous life that he lived, gets credited to us. And now God calls, he is just and the justifier in that he says, this righteous life that Christ lived, that is now what I credit to your account. And you meet the holy requirement to be my child. And I already said it, but who gives this knowledge? Who did I say gives us this understanding and this knowledge? Who puts it in our heart so that we can be saved by it? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit 
gives you this knowledge that makes you the child of God that John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. You're a child of God because your sins have been forgiven of you. Now, it's interesting to think the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you this knowledge to become a child of God. Think back to a conversation that John also records for us in John chapter 3 between Jesus and this guy named Nicodemus. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus must happen for him to have eternal life? A rebirth. He must be born again. And Nicodemus asked this. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Like, I got to somehow, like, get born through my mom again? Is that, is that what you're talking about? And what did Jesus say? No, no, no. Who do you have to be born of? The Holy Spirit. You must be born again of the Holy Spirit. And it makes perfect sense now with this child of God illustration or imagery or uh, language that John is using here in verse chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. To be the child of God that John is talking about here, Jesus says we must be born again. John 3, 3, this conversation that Nico remembered so well, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? And in verse 5, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is how we become the children of God that fall under this umbrella statement that John gives us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. Um, and uh, he really uses this word, this same word a few times, just 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Um, in verse two, or verse 18 of chapter 2, same word again for children here. Children, it is the last hour, and just as, just as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. I just point those out because it's a few times that John uses this same terminology where he's addressing the entirety of the church, all those who would be child, children of God. And when we get to verse 13 in a moment, that's where he's talking more from a maturity standpoint. That's where he says, um, he, he addresses like those who are spiritual babes in Christ. But for here, he's just addressing those. He says, of the, all those who are children of God, I'm writing to you Christians because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Bef he's writing the church. Because you are the church, you need to know these things that I am telling you. I, I love the point he makes here. We're saved for his name's sakes, for, for the glory of God. And that should really be a remarkable thing to you. If you think about all the things that God has created, all the things, and even the Bible tells us, like space and the heavens declare the glory of God. Think about all the ways that God demonstrates his power, his holiness, his might, 
it should be very humbling to you and remarkable that one of the key ways he does this, one of the most important ways he demonstrates his greatness and his glory is by saving you. You as an individual, like of all creation and all things, God has set his love on you. It's really a remarkable thing. So having addressed all believers in verse 12, he now moves through these three different levels of spiritual maturity. Spiritual babies, spiritual youth, and then we'll just call it spiritual grown-ups, okay? And let's start with the spiritual babies. Those who in verse 13, he uses a different word for children, pedea, which very much means a little baby, a little child, somebody who is still dependent on many others to do things for them. And when we talk about being a spiritual baby, like I mentioned earlier, you might be, th- th- you could be any age physically. You could be seven years old. You could be 90 years old. It's all about being young in your faith. He says in the second part or the very end of verse 13, I have written to you children, spiritually young, because you know the Father. They know the Father. Just because you are spiritually immature and a newborn in Jesus Christ, you are still 100% a Christian. You still have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You are 100% a child of God. That's a really key thing to realize. We're not talking about growing in the sense of like, oh, God's only given me a little bit of the Holy Spirit, but if I work really hard at it, maybe I'll get a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. God's not telling us that, hey, yeah, you know, you might be in, you might be out. We'll wait and see what happens if you work hard enough at it. And there's a lot of groups out there that would call themselves Christian that really look at salvation that way. No, these people, they know the Father. When you're born, are you like 50% a child of your parents? And we'll see, we'll see how much you develop. Maybe your parents will then. No, you're 100%, right? Same thing here. It's just you're at the beginning of your journey. You're at the beginning of your spiritual journey. You've got an eternity worth of being conformed to the likeness of Christ ahead of you. And if you are young in Christ, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very good thing. You are in Christ. Now your job is grow. Keep growing. I love what Paul told the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians, they were a good church. Like, you see what Paul had to write to the Corinthians and some other church situations that he had to write about in the New Testament. There are some rough circumstances. You look at the Thessalonians, though, they were kind of the model church. Yet he told them, excel still more. That's, that, that, think about anybody who does, accomplishes great things in this world from a worldly perspective. They work hard at it, right? And they're never satisfied. You look at somebody like Elon Musk, who's like the richest man in the world. You'd think he'd be satisfied. No. He wakes up every morning and goes to work super hard because he's just got an insatiable appetite to grow his wealth or whatever. I don't know what it is. But that's how we should be in our Christian walks, always wanting to grow more, 
always hungry and thirsty to keep growing, to keep growing in righteousness, to keep growing in obedience, to keep growing in those areas where we recognize we fall short, to keep growing in our intellectual knowledge of God. And really, that's the easiest area to grow in, I would argue, because like you can go crack open a book and learn intellectual things about God. That's good. You should do that. But the hard part is applying it. But it should be part of our day-to-day lives where we want to learn more about God and then turn around and apply it. Keep growing. 1 Peter 2.2, Peter says, As newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you're a newborn in Christ, that's the stage you're in. Let me learn more about God and start to really grow in the most challenging part, which is the application of it. Look for those who are, uh, here's something I don't think we emphasize enough, and maybe I'm wrong. I could be totally wrong on this, but I know for me personally, the most helpful thing, one of the most helpful things that God has used in my own life has been role models. At any stage of life, I think back probably to when I was like in middle school. At every stage in life, I could identify other men who were further along in life than I was and say, you know, that's who I want to be like. I want to, if my life turned out to be like theirs 5, 10, 15 years down the road, I'd be pretty happy about that. And, like, I would start hanging out with them. I would start asking them questions. I would start, uh, like, Fox, you know? I, every time you see Fox, he's, like, hanging around some older guy, just, like, talking him up. You know? That's good. That's good. You need, and you know what? If there are people who are worthy of being role models, they're going to love investing in you and doing that. Like, they're going to see that as a great opportunity. Because... The challenge at your stage, learning intellectual things about God is the easy part. Now you got to start applying it. And that comes through difficult circumstances. Sometimes, oftentimes, many times, usually, God is going to put you in hard circumstances to learn how to apply the things you are learning intellectually. That's how you oftentimes learn things um, the best. I mean, and it's like that in sports too, right? Like, if you want to get good at basketball, you want to go play with a bunch of six-year-olds? You're probably not going to get much better, though. You might, kind of like the, the opposite of what Taylor was saying, you might feel like you're doing awesome playing a bunch of six-year-olds, and then at the next tournament you get to, you're going to get crushed, right, because you haven't learned anything. Sometimes you've got to get into hard circumstances. You've got to play the hard teams. You've got to do the hard things. But be hungry for that spiritual growth. So he addresses spiritual babies, the next thing he addresses here are those who are spiritual youth, those who are further along that path of growth. It's a, he brings it up in verses 13 and 14. He, he calls them young men, but the Greek word here would be used for people who are about your age physically. Again, this is not a reference to their physical age. This is a reference to their maturity, but he's using your physical age as an illustration here. And he's talking about people that would be roughly your age. 
Um, and he says in verses 13 and 14, you have overcome the evil one, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And I think this illustration of baby versus youth is really very helpful because as a parent, I can tell you, Tucker is a million times easier to take care of than Chloe, okay? There's a big difference between babies and youth. There's a, if we, we walk down there, we're going to observe, and I'm grateful for this, a very big difference in that class down there versus the class that's going on in here, right? When you were one year old, two years old, people had to dress you. People had to feed you. People had to buckle you into your car seat. Nobody had to do that for anybody in here. Now, your parents may have had to beg you to go get it done. That possibly happened, right? But you can feed yourself. You can dress yourself. You can buckle yourself into your own car. Even the most basic things in life have to be done for you as a baby. But as you mature, you're doing these things on your own, right? And you don't just have an intellectual knowledge of how to do it. Like, you don't just have an intellectual knowledge of how to feed yourself or an intellectual knowledge of how to get dressed. But you actually do it every day. You live it out. You, 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 you can go in your room and take care of yourself. You actually do these things and live them out. It's a maturing process that has happened in your life. And it's the same thing in your spiritual life, right? Like as a baby, as a spiritual baby, you're learning these things about you know God is trustworthy intellectually. And you're learning things about God's holiness intellectually and like the power of his ability to provide for his children and take care of his children intellectually. But it's as you mature and you live through hard circumstances and you have to put that intellectual knowledge into practice, you now know these things and understand them at a totally different level. Because you're not just sitting back as a spiritual baby saying, okay, I know God will be faithful. God's faithful, I know that. Instead, you've matured through life's experiences to say, you know, not only do I know God is faithful, but he has been faithful to me, and I've experienced it and lived it out. It's this growing knowledge of God and obedience and spiritual maturity in our Christian life. And it's one of the beautiful things about the Christian life is that you're promised this is going to happen. Isn't that amazing? Because, like, there's a lot of things in life. I mean, even physical maturity. You're like, yeah, I hope I grow up to be six feet tall, but it didn't work out for me. I almost got there, but, I mean, my hopes were unfulfilled. Or, like, yeah, I hope I can grow up and be physically able to do these things. Or, like, I hope I can grow up and be smart enough to accomplish these things, but there's no guarantees. When it comes to your spiritual life, your spiritual growth is 100% a guarantee from God. It's an amazing thing as you think, okay, 10 years, 15 years down the road, is God going to use me and still glorify himself through me? And the answer to that is absolutely 100% yes. It's a, this promised spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that should be such a cause for rejoicing. 
Because think about your physical abilities, your intellectual abilities. Yeah, we all enjoy things from that, and those are good things. But are they the most important things? We're about to talk about very shortly here how, no, those are temporary things. I don't care how physically strong you are, you are going to die one day. And I don't care how brilliant you are intellectually, you are going to die one day. And all these earthly achievements are going to pass away and mean absolutely nothing. It's only what you've done for the kingdom of God that will be eternal, and only the spiritual fruit and the spiritual treasures of your life that will be eternal. That's the most important thing, and God has promised you success in those areas. We should rejoice that we will continue to grow because the Holy Spirit will do that in our lives. The third and final stage here, those he refers to as fathers, those who are spiritually mature. Again, because he's doing this in like a lyrical, poetic, artistic way, it comes out in his wording, right? It's like you write songs differently than you write out your research paper at work or school. Um, So he does this again in a very lyrical, poetic way. He says in the beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14, I am writing to you fathers, and I have written to you fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. This is, again, not a superficial knowledge or just a surface-level intellectual knowledge, but this is a deep-seated, deep understanding of God that comes about by experience comes about through experience. It comes through applying God's truth to your life day after day after day, year after year after year. You continue to grow. And as you get older, you'll be really astonished to look back and think, wow, look at what all God has done in my life. And like the different mile markers that he's brought you by in your life. He continues to grow you. And this path to maturity, this knowing, uh, it's this knowing of this eternal God who is from the beginning. And so John here, he acknowledges the church as a whole, but he acknowledges that within this church, in every church, we are all going to be at different levels of spiritual maturity. But the requirement for all of us, no matter what stage you're at, is to excel still more. Pursue ongoing growth. Pursue growing in Christ. And with that, we'll transition to verse 15 here. So in verse 7 to 11, this process of spiritual growth is going to have a very real impact on your thought life and your love life. That's not exactly how. The, the loves of your life, what you love. In verses 7 to 11, he talks about our love for one another and that it is um, a reminder God is always very concerned with what is going on in our heart because like Ian said here, what Ian just copied Jesus, which is always a good idea, what is going on in your heart overflows 
into the words you say and the actions that you do. And so the Holy Spirit lives within us to change our heart and our attitudes. And in verses 7 and 11, 7 to 11, he talked about our love for one another. In verses 15 to 17, he's going to talk about what we should not love. Do not love the world. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. He starts in verse 15, very clear command. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And he gives a very shocking, something that should be startling and get your attention. He gives a very strong diagnosis of somebody who loves the world. What is the diagnosis that he gives of somebody who loves the world in verse 15? What's the second half say? Yeah. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That should get your attention because that's the most important thing is do you know the gospel? Is the love of the Father in you? Are you a Christian? If you love the world, John is saying, no, the love of the Father is not in you. So if this is so important, what does John mean by the world. We need to define the world because should we love people, like the people around us, even those who aren't Christian? Should we love them? For sure we should. And like what about like mountains and space and like the beauty of the ocean? Like the Bible says that all declares the glory of God. Creation was declared by God to be very good. And sin entering the world definitely brought corruption, but it didn't completely obliterate the glory of God shown to us in creation. The Bible tells us that. So so when he says, don't love the world, what is John talking about? Ah, when you say men, I think you mean sinful, unredeemed humanity, right? the things that sinful, unredeemed humanity loves and what they want and what they prioritize. Yeah, I think you're definitely on to something. What are some examples of all that? What are some examples? Fox, then we'll come to Ian here. A desire for the praises of others. Yeah, Ian, that's a good one. A want for, and when you say worldly things, you mean? Like that eclipses any want for. Oh, see, this is good. I love that you said that. Wanting the things of this world more than God. Idolatry, basically. And I like you said that because I'm going to bring it up in a second. Earthly pleasures. Earthly pleasures, yeah. And I think, so does God hate us to have pleasure and feel good? No. So when you say earthly pleasures, I'm thinking maybe you mean, I'm going to just put words in your mouth. You tell me if I'm wrong. Putting those pleasures above God, making an idol of them. 
and which often leads us to pursue them in ways that are contrary to his design, right? All right, last one. Money. money. Yeah, like now money in and of itself is not bad, but Jesus did say a love of money. Okay, these are all good things, and I think y'all are on the track, because right track, when we talk about the world John doesn't want us to love, he is talking about the sinful things of this world, the worldly philosophies that do not give glory to God and are contrary to his truth, ways of thinking that are governed by this world, because um, who does, look at chapter 5, verse 19, John in 1 John five nineteen, the whole world lies in the power of who? You didn't read 519, you just guessed. Yeah, the evil one, Satan, right? Yes, God is sovereign and in control, absolutely. There's no question about it. And even Satan's activity fall under the confines of what God allows in his sovereignty, and you're getting us into deep, confusing waters. But God, in his sovereignty, has allowed Satan to basically be the one who fuels, governs this evil world system that we live in that John does not want us to love. As lovers of God, our passions are his truths, his glory, his kingdom, not this present world system or temporary world. The truth of God and God's way of thinking is not compatible with this world system, this spiritually dead, worldly way of thinking. That's the point that John makes in verse 16, here in 1 John 2.16. He says, for all that is in the world, the system that is governed by Satan, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world, which is governed by Satan. So think about the world around us. Think just about television, books, music, what is often taught in schools, when you're in the workplace, what you get taught in work. It's not rooted in biblical truth. It's not rooted in the eternal things of God or the glory of God. And so what does it produce? When you think of what this world produces, the first thing John gives us here, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. If you want to translate that, that you could say the desires and the impulses of our unredeemed bodies. And probably the first thing that comes to mind and a very accurate thing to come to mind would be sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is absolutely a product of the lust of our flesh. Is that a rampant thing in our world? Like is our world kind of obsessed with that? You don't have to look hard. You don't have to look at all to know the world is obsessed with sexual immorality. Books, movies, TV, day-to-day conversation, everything. But it doesn't just stop there. That's not the only thing he's talking about. Look at alcoholism. Look at drug addiction. Look at laziness. Laziness is another lust of the flesh. Just, I don't want to work hard. I just want to sit around and indulge whatever I want to indulge in. 
hedonism of any sort, just an overall addiction to pleasure. Where instead of, as the Christian, your life is to be driven by what God wants from you, what the Holy Spirit desires of you, unredeemed humanity just lives by the desires of the body. Whatever the lust of their flesh is, whatever their bodily impulses tell them to do, they're slaves to it. And often, who was it? I think Ian and also Ben or Josh over here brought it up. Like, these things in and of themselves are often not bad things, right? Like, when you think about sexual morality, like, sex in and of itself is not a bad thing. If you think about money, money in and of itself is not a bad thing. If you think about leisure in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's when these things become an idol in your life. When these things become something where fulfilling the desires of whatever you want takes a priority over, the, over God and the eternal things of his kingdom, they become an idol and they become a sin. Or when you pursue these things outside of God's design. For money, when you pursue these things through illegal means, through stealing, or through just being lazy and just hoping somebody else is going to take care of you. Or when you pursue things outside of marriage. Or when you pursue, like, leisure is the top priority for your life. When you pursue these things outside of God's design, that is when you are falling into the lust of the flesh and the love of the world that John calls us not to love. That's really what sin is most of the time is taking what God has made as a good thing and corrupting it and making it evil. He goes on to say the lust of the eyes. It's, we've been reading, or we start reading this envy book. It's that coveting. The lust of the eyes. Like you just want everything your eyes see. Whether it's a nicer car, nicer clothes, a nicer house, a nicer spouse, whatever it is. You see what other people have and you aren't grateful to God for what you have and you aren't content with what God has given you. Better physical appearance. That's a tough one as a young person, right? The lust of the eyes. You see what other people have and you think, why has God not been good enough to give that to me? And that's a sinful way of thinking. You're now complaining against God and accusing him of not being right to you. And think about the world. Do we live in a world of coveting? Do we live in an envious world? Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, I'm not criticizing people who wear makeup. That's fine. But like, how do you think these makeup companies get so rich? Or like cosmetic companies of any sort? Or like people who just, like, you think about, like, clothing, right? Like, anything, any physical thing. We build this world on coveting, just wanting what we don't have. I need a better car. I need a better uh, house. I need a better job. It's the lust of the eyes. And it's about pride, right? It's about self-centeredness, the boastful pride of life, the heart of pride that says, I deserve these things, and then also tends to always sit back and say, look what I have built. Look what I have accomplished. 
All these things are in direct contradiction to a heart that is set on God. He says at the end of verse 16, These things are not from the Father, but from the world. And what is happening to this world? It's passing away. It's passing away. The world, in verse 17, the world is passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. What is the will of God? The Bible makes it clear over and over again. The will of God is for you to be sanctified in Christ, for you to be growing in Christ's likeness. Every single time Paul speaks or the Bible speaks about the will of God, he puts it in those very simple terms. 1 Thessalonians 4, Three and four are, uh, let's see, First Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God. All right, so John says the one who does the will of God lives forever. Well, what is that? We need to know that then. John says this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. And then he goes on to explain specifically in the context there. He's talking about sexual immorality. But sanctification is instantaneously you're sanctified set apart in Christ when you become a believer and then progressively you're sanctified you continue to grow in Christ likeness as you mature through these stages that John has talked about baby youth grown believer he goes on again in case you're thinking like um the will of God is some enigma some confusing things he goes on to simplify it some more in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Think about how contrary this is to what John says about the love of the world. Paul tells the Thessalonians, this is God's will for your life. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's the opposite of what the world does, right? The world is about envy, boastfulness, the lust of the flesh, the desires of what you want. I just want more. I'm never satisfied. I need more, 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 more. John says, that's the love of the world that's fading away. The will of God, the one who does the will of God, lives forever, and it's the opposite of what John says. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything. A contentment, for what you have, because the most important thing you have is Jesus Christ. And it is eternal. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I mean, I, I don't know the spiritual anythings of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk, but you'd say from a worldly perspective, they've done some things, right? Like, just think of those three guys. Like, they've done some things. And you know what? I don't, we're going to get to a time where it is utterly irrelevant. Utterly irrelevant. Which is pretty amazing to even think about. Because the things of this world are fading away. And the only things that will last will be those things that are of God's eternal kingdom. And so... 
If you are setting up chairs in the morning to the glory of God, we're going to get to a point where what you are doing is drastically more important than anything Elon Musk, Bill Gates, or Jeff Bezos have done. It's pretty remarkable to think about, right? But it requires a change in the way we think where our minds aren't wrapped up and occupied with the temporary passing away things of this world and instead are wrapped up and occupied in the eternal things of God. And it takes spiritual discipline and daily focus to think that way because the world just comes at you. You see Amazon trucks driving around all day, every day, right? Like the world is in front of your face every day and just yelling at you and you feel it and touch it. Whereas God's kingdom requires us to make that intentional day-to-day effort to say, God, I'm going to turn my attention away from the things of this world and to you. So in quick application, part one, uh, take inventory of your passions and your loves. Do you look at how you spend your time? I think take a, do an audit of how you spend your time I think that's a good way to see where your loves and your passions are. Do an audit of your time. Do you spend most of your time working on temporary things that are going to fade away and be gone? Or do you spend more time on those things that are eternal? And you know, there's good things in this world that we get to enjoy and experience. Um, yeah, like I love 1 Timothy six seventeen. Paul tells Timothy like, hey, I'm paraphrasing here. T- Paul tells Timothy like in 1 Timothy six seventeen, don't be obsessed with this thing, the things of this world. Instead, be obsessed, put your faith in God who gives us all things to enjoy. Like, God wants us to enjoy life in him. And God wants us to enjoy things in him. So this isn't about becoming like a monk in a cave somewhere who eats like crickets and drinks like rainwater. Like, but it's about, instead, just where are your loves and your passions? Are they on the things of God? And God will give you the desires of your heart, the things you enjoy in him. But where, what, when we look at an inventory of our time and our passions, what do they say we value? The second thing I would challenge you with is invest in your spiritual growth. No matter where you're at. If you're a newborn in Christ or you've been a Christian since you were like seven years old and you're pretty mature and people tell you you're pretty mature all the time. Paul told the Thessalonians, excel still more. Excel still more. Pursue spiritual growth. Pursue the intellectual knowledge of God. And then, just as importantly, pursue applying that in your day-to-day life. And oftentimes, God's going to bring about application through challenging circumstances because that's really where you learn how to put the things of God into practice. When God says, hey, trust me, I'm going to be faithful to you in any circumstance, it's a lot harder to do that when circumstances are bad, right? When circumstances are tough. But that's when you get the most opportunity 
to learn how to do that and see God's faithfulness, it's often not through the easy things of life, but through the challenging things. But pursue spiritual growth. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you grow us and that you promise to grow us and you ask for us to simply trust you and pursue obedience, Lord. And we just thank you that you do so much for us and uh, pray that you would help us to continually more clearly see your glory and your goodness in everything you do and in everything that you bring into our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.